there were so many bots and it, it opened up my eye to the money laundering industry. Actually, Brett, I don't know if you know this, there was a point in time where the FBI actually wanted to shut down Zenga Poker and Zenga fielded inquiries from the FBI associated with uh, money laundering. And, and I think it was at one point considered by Zenga actually maybe a thing to do, a, a decision that would be worthwhile making. But fraud was a huge issue, and no other company that I've worked at has processed payment transactions at the same scale that, that Zenga was doing internationally. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Kuffel and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grits founder and CEO. And on this episode of Creators at Work, we chat with Justin Wicket, who worked at Zynga from 2010 to 2013 and was the former director of product for Zynga Poker. We unpack his takeaways from his time at Zynga, like the balance between analytics and player experience needed to make impactful decisions, the importance of short and long-term goals to unify a company, and the perils and pitfalls around hackers, bots, and fraudulent accounts. This is Creators at Work. I don't know this story. How did you land at Zynga? I landed at Zenga actually right out of my undergrad program. It was myself and one other individual. We were the only two PMs hired as, as product managers right out of undergrad. Everyone else had years of management consulting experience or had worked in finance and was out of some kind of MBA program. We were right out of our, our undergrad. Yeah. And you got there and to put it mildly, kicked butt pretty quickly. I mean, I'm just reading your research doc and I was there. I know it. But for those of you listening, you joined in 2010. And then in 2000. 2011, you became a senior product manager. That was in April. And then a lead product manager in January of 2012. And then a director of product in October of 2012. So nine months later, you went to, from lead to director. And I was on your team and all of this was legit. I mean, I think at the time I was maybe 29 years old. You must have been what at that time? Oh my gosh. I think I was quite young, probably like 20, 22 or so, 23. Um, <laughs> but there was yeah. just so much growth at Zenga at that time. Uh, there were so many new games that were being launched. There was so much talent coming. In, uh, it was a really exciting time. I mean, I thought it was one of the coolest things about Zynga. There was not any age discrimination. I mean, if you were a baller like Justin, you, I know you're not going to say it, but Justin is a baller and deserve all of this. And that was hard for me to swallow. I mean, I was a 29 year old, one year out of business school dude, and my boss was a 23 year old kid coming out of Duke. And it was legit. I mean, it wasn't something that I could convince myself like this isn't the way it should be. I mean, it was the right system. And I think everybody in the team felt that way. And I mean, what was it like being a 23 year old director of product of a billion dollar mobile game? Well, I think that frankly, at that moment in time, I was so in the metrics. We were all just living and breathing these players. What was driving them to, to play more? What kind of fun they were having? So I wasn't so much thinking of my age or past experience. And I don't think anyone at Zenga thought that way because what we were doing was just so unique. There were people that had decades of experience, say, in user research or in AAA gaming at Zenga that were getting exposed to this new way of developing product and thinking through metrics-driven decision-making. So I think it was new for all of us. 
Yeah, it, it was new, but to be able to build a culture where you have somebody who is that young be the manager of other people who are older is not typical. And it also happened in my case, right? You may have remembered that I entered and someone who had been there before me with a higher title, I ended up being their manager as well. So I ended up surpassing them. And I mean, I think that was an amazing part of the Zynga culture. There wasn't any age discrimination. You could level up as quickly. If you were talented, like you were, you could level up super quickly. Like I just read off, you could become a senior, a lead, a director in three short quarters or even shorter than that. Yeah, it was incredible to be given access to say, a database of, of information and to be able to observe trends and work with data analysts and engineers and these super talented artists to figure out what's going to resonate with a player and bring that to market in, in, in a, a meeting with Pincus or even in a weekly product review, being able to showcase your, your work and the metrics that you were able to drive and um, yeah, get rewarded as a result. Yeah. And I felt like you had a way to be authoritative, even without the title. And I was always really impressed by that. Again, you were very young at the time, but you had this ability to kind of come into a meeting and have a presence. And I'm going to call something out that you might not know the story behind Justin, just to kick off some of the more fun parts of this podcast. Okay. Justin was my boss at certain parts of my career. And Justin used to come in on one-on-ones. He had an intensity to him. He was like walking around the office, like this dude had a purpose and he's going around the office, he's in the meetings and he's working with you and, and you're in kind of a small side offices. No one really had offices. So you just grab a room and maybe have a small table. I can remember this vividly. Justin's in the room with me and I noticed we would sit down, but then Justin would stand up. So you would be in the meeting and, and all of a sudden Justin would be standing in the meeting and I would be sitting. I was a pretty competitive guy. So I'd start standing around. <laughs> so I would start standing up and we're both in the meeting having started sitting down or whatever. And then we were standing up and then we maybe sit down, stand up. It was like this jockeying of position of like who was standing and who was sitting. I'm pretty sure that was not intentional judging by your facial expressions, Justin. But I always love that. I mean, the intensity level, like, and also in meetings, you weren't afraid you would go right to the front of the room looking at the board and bringing this intensity and this authority to the meeting. Was that something that you did naturally or you were trained? I know your parents are both ballers as well. Or was that something that you read about? How did that happen at age 23? So I, I think that you know, in short, we were also blessed to have this opportunity to, to work on this business. And when we interviewed candidates at Zenga, one of the things that we'd always talk about is, is this the type of person who's going to grab that expo marker and hop up to the whiteboard and, and start actually flushing out some of their ideas? And are, are they going to be able to be respectful and responsive to, to feedback and coaching? But it was really important to see that, yeah, this is someone that, that had conviction that could that could take initiative and, and lead. I think part of the standing up in some one-on-ones was there's just so much energy at that company. There was so much going on every day. The number of concurrence playing at any given moment was incredible. So time, time was of the essence. So the standing wasn't intentional. I think it just happened, but um, <laughs> it was probably part of the, the broader culture, which is just getting shit done. People showed up with a lot of passion and enthusiasm. 
Yeah, I was, I was lucky to be part of that. Okay, well, I'm getting better at this, Justin. I'm not going to let you off that easily, dude. I mean, uh, you have... That's very like, nice l- sounding. L- that was a really... We're going to edit that soundbite. Dude, you have an exceptional way of creating an authority in a room. And I'm not just saying that because we're on the podcast or whatever. I mean, you do, particularly at a very young age. Was there anything that you did to do that beforehand or any like learnings or any classes or anything? Or that just... That was kind of naturally something that you did. Uh, I mean, look, I, I think for me, I had a phenomenal manager early on at Zenga as well. A couple of phenomenal managers. One individual, Manuel Bronstein, who went on to do all of these incredible things. Now he just took a, a chief product officer role at an incredible gaming company. And before that was doing product management at Google, the highest levels, Michael Kane as well. So just observing these other people who were defining the culture from the very beginning was incredibly helpful for me. Being part of Stanford Business School, actually, for, for a short period of time, just seeing how these other students who were all leaders in their own respective fields would act and the level of professionalism and kind of intensity that they would bring in in the best way possible because you can be intense and embraceive but figuring out the the way the right way to balance that was something that I strive for. And I really look to the, my leaders in the organization to to get that culture instilled in me. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly an exceptional group of people at Zynga. And I don't know if it was the environment or what, but you could learn a ton from people because we were interacting with so many different levels and so many different people all the time that you did pick up these things from everybody. And Michael Kane was exceptional. He was also my boss and we're actually getting him on the podcast and I'm super nice. fired up to talk to him about stuff. There's so many different aspects to the product management job. So many aspects that Michael excels at watching him communicate his style early on helped shape a lot of the the, the approaches that I would take in situations. And one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast was that Zynga was obviously such an analytically driven product org. And we were certainly trained by the best, like Michael Kane, on how to do all the analytical stuff. I felt like I really struggled after I left on the human side of product management because we had been somewhat given the free reign to push things through without maybe 100% buying or as much buying as you might get in another culture. Was that something that you felt like you struggled with? And if so, is there stuff that you've developed over time to help you with that? I mean, now you're running your own company. So there's obviously a lot of the human stuff that you that you must deal with. I absolutely did, Brad. After Zenga, I went to work at Lyft, the ride-sharing company. And Lyft took a very different approach to product management. It was outside of gaming, still a a very consumer-driven product and company, but uh, there was much more emphasis on the, the founder's vision for how this company should unfold. There were drivers that the product was a driver's time and their willingness to actually share a ride and and give someone a lift. So there was this very different aspect to how product decisions were made where before at Zenga, where you could just dig into the data yourself and push a feature with a team of rockstar engineers and great artists at Lyft, you were really impacting the physical world and physical experiences. And so that was, that was very different for me. I learned a lot through that process. And then uh, before starting this company where I'm at today, Informed.iq, I was doing product management at Credit Karma, which was similar in, in many regards, very much 
founder, vision-led, and, and less pure product analytical aspects of determining the roadmap. Now, it's interesting you say that about founder-led because I joined another company after leaving gaming and it was somewhat similar where they had product people, but I don't think that the founders really let go of the idea that they weren't going to make the decisions. Right. And I think Pincus was, he was a visionary, obviously, but I think he did a pretty good job of letting go of the product's vision, at least day to day. And we obviously met with him quarterly and he had his ideas, but they were generally much more forward thinking ideas like, hey, have you, why aren't you in every Starbucks or why don't you do the biggest poker tournament in the world or whatever awesome idea he may have? But he wasn't on top of us in terms of what we were going to do next. And I think that that's important for the founder to be able to detach themselves. If they're going to hire product managers and want them to really product manage, then they need to be able to do that. And I think some of that conflict happens when they hire them thinking they're going to do that, but then they won't let go of the product. I completely agree. I think that he did a phenomenal job as, as truly the product leader at Zenga, doing a phenomenal job of separating himself, providing very high level objectives, painting the, the vision in terms of where he wanted these games or this company to be, but then allowing the, the, the boots on the ground to run the show. There, there sometimes, though, were disconnects between the two where you'd hear this actually very inspirational vision of poker communities or these conferences that Zenga Poker could, could be part of and host. But then the execution didn't always, we, we somehow would, would go back to these quick hits is what we'd call them. And uh, that, was, that was interesting to think about after the fact. We've talked about that on our other podcasts, mm -hmm. Andrew Rice, we went into depth and I guess he changed. You'll, you'll be happy to know they got rid of daily numbers and on call and some of the other stuff that we used to spend a lot of time on and even estimates. He said that foundationally you had to know them, but they weren't using them as much as we were using them back in the day, so to speak. You know, one of the things that I think we both benefited from as product managers was an interest in the design. And I know you were big into that. We have some of your Twitter posts that you're still looking at the design of everyday things and, and posting. And that was a big influence book I know you recommended to me back in the day. Talk to me a little bit about you know that aspect of product management. How did you develop that? How did it help you at Zynga or how have you developed it beyond in terms of the analytics obviously is one component of it, but having the other side is, is obviously super important as well. Yeah, absolutely. From a design standpoint, I think that uh, Zenga had a lot of graphic designers in the beginning, a lot of talented artists. And then as the company grew, we began to pull in more user researchers that would be responsible for kind of quantitative user studies. And then we had one of the, the, the divisions that I felt was always kind of underrepresented was customer service. And Brett, I don't know if you, if you recall or remember this, but I remember showing up one day to work and there were boxes of beers that customer service had received because they had done a phenomenal job of ultimately serving this huge spender in the game. And that individual, it was a woman, she, she sent our whole department uh, boxes upon boxes of beers. And it made me realize, oh my gosh, there's real players who are, they, they love this game. And they're the ones providing the feedback, driving the design decisions that we need to think of and, and make. That was an incredible memory that I have of Zenga. Let me get back to your design question though. From a design standpoint at Zenga, I think that product managers were obviously very much focused on wireframing and, and then 
would rely on artists to kind of help flesh out those wireframes. And some of the best designers that I work with, they would completely tear up my wireframes and really understand what it is that would resonate with the player, create the cohesive experience around the, the player. And Nina Desai is one of the individuals that comes to mind in that in that regard, who I really enjoyed working with. I think I would always level me up from a design standpoint. I also very much enjoyed listening to customer service because while we had such a, a small number of payers, they, in the end of the day, were so important to the company's success from a revenue standpoint. Yeah, I would completely agree that the customer service was underdeveloped at Zynga at the time. I, mean, I totally. think we had maybe one customer service or three sitting I, in. I think three on, reps, but three they just didn't in, have the resources yeah. and they were fielding so many responses and kind of issues. But the payers, the, the whales in the game, the folks that truly dedicated their lives to this game, love playing this game, we, I felt, could have done actually so much more to better serve them. As I, as I spend time in other companies looking at Lyft's operations team relative to its product management organization, operations was massive at Lyft relative to the, the customer base. And there was, I think, a huge opportunity to actually better empower our customer service reps at, at Zenga and unlock more value there. Yeah, I think that was also, it's a downside to having so much analytics, right? Is that you somewhat dehumanize the customer, right? They're not people, they're DAU. They're not high value people, they're whales, right? And you end up turning them into just a number and you do get detached from the fact that that's just a person on the other end trying to be happy and trying to have positive experiences in their life. I think I was fortunate to be on the revenue side where it was it was more obvious that it was a person, right? Because the numbers were so much smaller and you had a such such a narrower funnel. You had to think more in terms of that one person because that one person might be spending $1,000 tomorrow. And if you don't get that one person to do it, then your feature might not be effective. We did a fair amount of phone calls with them as well. I mean, I think that's one thing about Zynga that was pretty well documented was the, the amount of access you had to data and we had the product council of users who we talked about. I was about to mention that. And I, Brett, I think you were instrumental in putting that together, driving that, advocating for product council. That was another driver for customer-centric design was thinking about the product council, the different individuals that it represented. Now, I think we struggled with balancing the different voices and opinions on that product council, some players were a lot more vocal than others, but that was a great channel through which we were able to, to hear the voice of the player, especially the voice of the payers who were so important to the success of the, the business. Yeah. And we could get so much great data so quickly. I mean, Katie, if you want to do a survey, for example, you could build it at eight o'clock in the morning and send it to the head of community at nine. And then you would have close to 2000 responses by one o'clock. I mean, it was that quick and there was no approval process. Nothing. I have never, it's never been that fast in any other company at Lyft, at Credit Karma. I've never been in a, in a role where uh, you could just get that kind of feedback so quickly from, from folks that, that really enjoy your product. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. I used to say it was sort of like a playground for MBAs because you just had data at your fingertips everywhere. And we built our own internal tools where you could pull all this data too. You could 
basically take a string, a URL string, which every action the game had, and then put it into this tool and it would fire back all the data on that one action. So if you tapped a button in the game, you could go look at all the data on that, the clicks, the opens, the uniques and everything, and then pull that data. And we had all these custom tools that were built early on. And you, I mean, you could sit there and literally just download Excel spreadsheet upon Excel spreadsheet of data so much that you couldn't really even use half of it, but it was incredible. The other one that I thought was so cool, which I don't know if other gaming companies do enough, but the link testing tool was one of my kind of secret go-tos. Well, before I go into that, the whales, I completely agree. On the revenue side, I used to have connections with a bunch of the heavy payers. They would actually fix bugs for me and tell me what was going on in the game because they knew what was going on in the game more than I did. So when we had an issue, I would often email them and say, hey, we're seeing this issue. What's going on? And they would be the ones who tell me me and I wouldn't have to do all this analysis. I would be able to go to the devs and be like, hey, the heavy payers are telling me that this is broken. So can we fix it? And I wouldn't have to do all this analysis. Not, um, not just the devs, but I remember Brett coming to me or others in the organization uh, being able to say that. And uh, I mean, that carried so much weight. There's so much power when you can actually cite, look, I've got someone who spent $10,000 in the game last week, and this is what they're asking for. That's very real. That's material. Zynga was also somewhat of Facebook's QA, and we would get a lot of issues with Facebook as well. So we would be fixing those. Again, being a revenue PM was a blessing for so many reasons. And I think it was a little bit probably more similar to other products because we had 5 million people playing our game every day, Katie, at the time. That number is, is so much. I don't know. What was the MAU at that time? 25 million or something? I mean, it was... Yeah, it was, I think it was up to 30 million. 30 million. Yeah, 30 million. So... 30 million people playing our game every month, 5 million every day. And we were making about $750,000 a day in revenue. And Justin was leading DAU at one point, I was leaving at revenue. So just to give you an idea of the scale of this game, we're making $300 million a year. And you've got Justin, a 23-year-old kid. I was a 29-year-old with only a couple of years of work experience. I mean, I played pro hockey till 25. So you're talking four years of work experience under my belt, one or two under Justin's. And we're probably the most knowledgeable about the DAU in the revenue, maybe besides Michael Kane, but probably not because he was also managing a whole bunch of other things. To give you an idea of the scale we were working with, it's pretty insane. One of the things that you have on your LinkedIn profile that I want to bring up because it's a ridiculous story. And I don't know if you can remember this, but of the 5 million people playing our game every day, 1.1 million of them were from Indonesia. Katie, okay. Yes. So they're there. Okay. <laughs> the revenue per user for those players was less than one cent. So they were just a ton of users, but they weren't spending any money. A lot of those players were fraudulent. So they were fraudulent attacks. And I don't know if you remember this, Justin, but you invited the whole product management team to go out on your boat one weekend out in the bay and we're out there so we have the whole product team and at this point we had some ridiculous like eight product managers and 10 product managers. I remember Michael Kane was there a whole bunch of we were going out, going to go out on the ocean and or on the bay rather. And I'm checking the concurrence and I'm getting these alerts that our revenue is week over week going up 10%, 15%. I mean, it is just going nuts. And for a little bit we're 
thinking, well, maybe we had some release or whatever. And all of a sudden it wouldn't stop. And it basically got to 100% increase in revenue week over week. And it was that Saturday. Do you remember this story, Justin? I actually don't quite remember this story, but keep going. Okay. So, so we're out on the boat and I'm with my boss, Justin, and my boss's boss, Michael Kane, and the revenue numbers are going bananas, right? So we would have these graphs, Katie, that would show last week's revenue or this week's revenue and compare. So it'd be week over week. Mm -hmm. And one thing about humans is we all think we're unique. Well, when you get a large enough number, I mean, literally that line would be right on the line from the previous week. I mean, the concurrent actions of human beings week over week are pretty standardized. I mean, they're, they're pretty much mm -hmm. the same thing when you get it to certain numbers. And so if they ever went off that line at all, we would be alerted and we would know about it. We'd look into it. Well, this line is going off the charts and it's getting to the point where it's a hundred percent increase. Right. And I'm out on this boat. We're getting soaked out in the bay, uh, bouncing around. I remember my wife was like, Oh, I don't need a jacket. Just as like, you should wear a jacket. Well, by the end of the trip, she's completely drenched and I'm in the back freaking out about the revenue. Well, it ends up that there was a payment break. Like there was basically like a payment provider that had an issue that the Indonesians had figured out and they were kidding it with these fraudulent purchases and getting our chips into their profiles to to the order of doubling our revenue. So this is over the course of two and a half days before we shut it down, it was over a million dollars worth of spend on our game that they had taken the currency. And these guys were so sophisticated that once they took it into their profile, it's not like they kept it in a profile. They're almost like the mafia. They ended up laundering it to all their other profiles so that not one profile you could just shut down and get all that currency back. Mm -hmm. So one point, I think it was 1.2, $1.3 million worth of currency got flooded into our economy while we're out on a boat, you know, and hanging out on the weekend. I uh, totally remember this now. And that I think is a true testament to just how fast things would happen when you're dealing with such a massive group of users. I won't call these people players because there were so many bots and it, it opened up my eye to the money laundering industry. Actually, Brett, I don't know if you know this, but there was a point in time where the FBI actually wanted to shut down Zenga Poker and Zenga fielded inquiries from the FBI associated with uh, money laundering. And, and I think it was at one point considered by Zenga actually maybe a thing to do, a, a decision that would be worthwhile making because Zenga got Farmville and so many other products that, that were generating real revenues. But fraud was a huge issue and no other company that I've worked at has processed payment transactions at the same scale that, that Zenga was doing internationally with so much fraud and chargeback risk. And, and Brett, you're totally right. You were the guy that was responsible for the revenue, the quarter of a billion dollars in revenue that this product was, was making. Yeah. And it was bad for Facebook as well, because Facebook was getting these chargebacks. So they were getting these fraudulent credit card chargebacks and they were getting a bad rating because of all these chargebacks, Katie. And so mm. they jump in. So after this, in fact, the only reason it got turned off is because I pinged someone at Facebook directly and said, hey, you need to turn this off. Basically, they discredited. They were like, no, it's nothing or whatever. It's probably just your players. And I was like, no, you need to shut this off. So I finally get through. They shut it off after two days. And so a million and a half of our revenue is gone. Anyways, so they decide they're going to bring in the big guns. So they have someone come in. I, maybe it was like virtual. We meet with them. And this is like the head of risk or whatever in Texas. And these guys are going to solve our problems. So I meet with them. We explain the issue. They're like, listen, don't worry about it. We're going to 
solve this no problem. So they go away a month later, I ping them and say, Hey, what, you know, what's the deal? Nothing's changed on our end. They said, well, yeah, we released an algo that we thought was going to stop the issue. And they figured it out in eight hours. The next algo they figured out in five, the next one in three. Now they have us pegged in 15 minutes. So the Facebook was getting basically destroyed by these Indonesian bot systems that were figuring out their algorithms that was supposed to basically shut them off within 15 minutes at this point. And so Facebook had basically kind of given up. The last story about that is I asked our head of who is the guy in New York who was kind of head of black ops. You remember he was Nick Khan. Nikon. Nikon would be like smoking cigarettes during our scrums. And I'm pretty sure he came from some other less appropriate industries and he owned Black Ops. And I turned to him one time and said, listen, if we wanted to stop these Indonesian hackers, what would it take? And we had a team of 80 people. I think we had about maybe 40 devs or something ridiculous. And he said that if we dedicate all of our devs for three quarters, we might have a shot at stopping these Indonesian hackers. Like that's what we needed to do. Like we need to just 100% commit for three quarters. So that, this is the kind of atmosphere that, again, let's go back to Justin, because that's who that's what I want to hear from. Justin Wicked at the age of 23 is managing teams that are dealing with this at the time. So it was, it was it was quite an experience. As you look back on it, what are some of the things that you think, you know, you would have improved upon or changed? And we talked a little bit about, I think one of the other things that I'm going to say, and I, I don't think you have to agree with it, but the politics that ended up happening later on in our tenure there was something that I was terrible at. I mean, I often joke that I was somewhat forced to become an entrepreneur. It wasn't really a choice. It was just like experiences at businesses where it was like, yeah, I'm really bad at politics. I'm really bad at some of these human side stuff. I need to just go own my own thing where I don't have to deal with these things. That I got I got a little bit blindsided by that, the politics of it that kind of came in later on. What are some of the things that you, know, you maybe struggled with there or improved upon after you left? Well, I, I completely agree with the politics. Uh, and, and I wouldn't say so much politics because that's a negative word, but the, this notion of there's all of these different stakeholders, these different folks that uh, want to come in, that want to uh, contribute to making this game as great as possible for the players. And I didn't feel like there was a, a great understanding of how these folks would be able to work together to facilitate for that at, at kind of higher levels of the organization. We kept um, adding new functions into the organization, like say a user research function or uh, a game design function. But it wasn't so much communicated in terms of how we should be going about working together to create the best experiences for the players. Frameworks weren't immediately obvious. Uh, and so I think that's an area that I wish that, that I could have improved on, where uh, I, I could have seeked out more formal training to better enable for these super smart folks to collaborate together to draw upon their experiences and, and deliver the best possible outcome for the players. Absolutely. I think that's that's a management issue. So there was that going on. The other thing that was going on was obviously Facebook as a platform was changing. And Brett, you, the story you talked about where Facebook tried to take on the Indonesian fraudsters and, and basically lost their shirt. Totally true. Ultimately, Facebook, when they launched credits, that was incredible to watch this huge company invest in Facebook credits as the future monetization engine for Facebook. And then watching this massive company pivot away from Facebook credits to a pure advertising model. That's the Facebook model today. Being able to witness that shift was really incredible. I think that in short, Facebook was a platform that was very much evolving. 
And Zenga could have done a lot better job, obviously, in terms of making itself less reliant on the Facebook platform. When I worked at Lyft, we didn't have the same kind of reliance on iOS, on Apple, or on Android. It didn't impact us to the same degree that, say, Facebook impacted us at Zenga uh, or at Credit Karma. Uh, Credit Karma was not impacted by the Google search engine to the same degree that, that Zenga was. So I think those are the two changes when I look back at Zenga. What could we have done to, to better serve the players and ultimately create a, an even stronger business? The business that we built was phenomenal, but to make it even stronger, those are the two things that really resonate. Those are great points. I think with the first point as a business owner, and I think, again, you have to be careful of letting go of control of things that you don't really want to let go of. I think in our minds, we think it's a really great idea to give control over to certain things to other people. But I think that as an owner, my excitement for coming into work every day is those product decisions. And if I hire somebody who's going to then own those product decisions, then what am I going to get excited about? And then there's that tension. And I think my father-in-law did a good job of showing this to me where he just kind of hired people that were going to own their thing, but he was still going to somewhat be that visionary. And he was okay with that. And I think what you're getting to is at Zynga, we hire these people, kind of promise them that they were going to own stuff, but then didn't build that infrastructure so that they could. Yeah. We still had it. So the product manager was supposed to be the owner. As product managers, we were somewhat set up for failure because these people brought on to own stuff. We were tasked with owning it ourselves. And then we were somewhat given the responsibility of figuring it out. And then we became the bad guy. It was our role to kind of be the bad guy. Yeah. In, in the end of the day, it was you, Brett, who was going in the meeting with Pincus, explaining why our revenues were what they, what they were. And so while there were other folks, stakeholders in the organization who would talk about the player's aspirations from a game design standpoint or from a user research standpoint, in the end of the day, there was a disconnect in, in terms of you were the guy reporting on, on the quarter a billion dollars in revenue that the company was counting on so that everyone could could get their raises and keep their jobs. Completely agree. You were really the one that at the end of the day, you had to basically send out every feature you released, what you expected it to do and what it actually did in a one page. I mean, one of the slides in the deck just basically said, you promised this and this is what you delivered on and then your name would be on it. I mean, at the end of the day, it was your neck out there getting sent to the entire company. This wasn't just sent to five, 10 people and people would read it. I mean, I mean, people say that today, well, I recognize your name. It's yeah, you saw it on emails out to the company. I'm teachers that made X amount of money for the company. The other component was something that I realized probably from my MBA experience with Porter's Five Forces, which is somewhat more very classic strategy framework, but that it was in Facebook's best interest to somewhat, I would say, this is going to be a strong word, but somewhat, I'm going to say leverage, leverage Zynga to grow their platform, right? So in early days, they let Zynga blast the ecosystem with virality, right? Which ended up bringing people to Facebook platform and somewhat marketed as a Zynga thing, right? Like, oh, this is a Zynga thing. Zynga, Zynga is a spammy thing. Facebook is not a spammy thing, right? But at the end of the day, it was Facebook that just said, you guys have carte blanche to do whatever you want on our platform. Who was really in control there? Once Facebook grew, what happened was Zynga as a percentage of ownership of the revenue was very large. And so Zynga had a lot of power. So much so that Pincus and Zuckerberg used to meet and we used to be able to email Facebook and tell them, hey, you need to change this, you need to change that. Well, 
as a, if you've studied the Portified Forces, you know that you don't want that. You don't want your suppliers to have a lot of control. You want to divvy it up so that it's like 10%, 10%, 10%, 10% in terms of control of the companies. So I realized, and I knew this, that it was in Facebook's best interest to shrink our percentage of ownership so that they didn't have to deal with Hingis. They didn't have to deal with EA. They wanted them to get in line to Facebook rules. And so I think you're, you're right. We had to figure out a way to get away from Facebook because it was in their best interest to grow us really big and then kind of cut us back down. And and inevitably, I think they did some of I mean, they had a large part in that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it applies to a lot of other businesses in some ways. Zenga should have embraced mobile much, much earlier on because it was the best thing that happened to the company. It was an opportunity to deleverage risk and diversify the, the forms through which they could, they could reach their players. So it was surprising that they didn't do more early on. I think actually the poker game did a great job of going mobile first and really building a cohesive product experience across both platforms and Zenga Booker Mobile today still has so many players engaging with it. It's incredible. It makes me think about similar businesses and new platform opportunities whereby you can actually really deleverage risk and, and get access to, to new channels through which you can uh, serve your audience and, and uh, customer base. That is an interesting part of Zynga because people often say you guys miss mobile, but we actually had Zynga Poker way before mobile was big. I mean, we had it right there. It was we should have poured money on that thing from a marketing standpoint, and we did. We we did a great job, but that was maybe a, a business failure or like a, a lost opportunity. I mean, we had an opportunity to really make that thing huge. And remember the Z bar, that cross promotion uh, mm -hmm. channel, that tool. I mean, in retrospect, Zenga Poker was Zenga's first game, and there was a reason for that. Zenga actually grew. From this initial poker game, I, I totally believe in the, the power of cross-promotion, and it's really a cross-selling tactic. There was, I think, a missed opportunity to really pour money on that uh, Zynga Poker mobile application, blow it up, get it in the hands of so many folks that would be interested in playing a round of poker, and then leverage that as a channel through which they could promote other, other products and solutions and games to the players. Potentially the short-term view of so much as Zynga was the reason for our inability to do that. I think that if I look at other companies like what I hear of Amazon or, or something like that, they have these long-term philosophies where they're 100% confident, for example, that people are always going to be happy paying less for something, right? So they're willing to invest in that quarter over quarter over quarter, even if the results aren't going to come in. And I think that we didn't really have that type of philosophy or that framework to say, okay, the players are want to play this wherever they are. Right. So let's invest in these and, and really go into mobile. Let's go into HTML5. Let's go in these other areas. And we're okay having losses as long as we are wherever the player is going to be. I think we did a pretty decent job of dabbling in that because I remember seeing a poker would always be like testing out the new thing. I think it was still driven by, okay, what well, was the first week ROI on that? Not good. Okay. What's the next thing we're going to try to do as opposed to? being able to really invest in it. Yeah, in, in many ways, I actually think that we, in some regards, had like a limited definition of what a, what constitutes a bold beat. And, and there was this you know, really strong focus on, on the player 
uh, and what will generate revenue. And that absolutely is important. But for a game like Zenga Poker, which is such a platform play, poker, Zenga didn't invent the game poker. It just happened to build a great product on a phenomenal platform at the time that then, as we're talking about, later turned a little adversarial. But that was uh, the type of bold beat that Zenga, I think, should have gone after a lot more of. And uh, for whatever reason, the definition of bold beats were so player-centric. Uh, we tried so hard to, to really serve the player in that context. We missed maybe out on some of the platform opportunities. That's a great point that you have to be honest about what, what was it that really made you successful. And if you think about Zynga Poker, it was a lot to do with being on the platform at the right time, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a poker game and there was obviously other elements. It was well-built. It was scalable, all these other things. But at the end of the day, that was a lot of it. So double down on that when other things come up and we kind of miss that. Well, Justin, you're not now in the gaming space, but you're still in the tech space. So we do ask this question of everyone who comes on where they see entertainment going in the next three to five years. I think maybe for you, it's a, you're looking at the broader space of technology. So we'll open this up to just general tech. You're in a, a cool new space. We're curious to what you think, where do you think things are going in the next three to five years, just in technology and, and media and entertainment? Well, so the, the trend that I've really been focused on is leveraging data uh, and, and machine learning models and algorithms to perform better segmentation, classification, predictions. Brett, you were actually early on in this. I think Zen despite having so much data, didn't really harness machine learning. There was a lot of just procedural code, rule-based code. And I know that you were actually doing some predictions in terms of likelihood of pain or uh, likelihood to retain. And that, I think, really was huge, something that, that Zenga could have leveraged uh, and, and really blown up as well, a lot more of. So in terms of the, the trends that, that I'm excited about and, and I see in the industry, one is hyper-personalization and the ability to make accurate predictions. You were talking about earlier how uh, Katie, this is totally true. Like the law of large numbers, people behave in very predictable manners at scale. And so being able to model that and more accurately predict or segment based on a particular type of user, their patterns and behaviors, that I think is, is a huge opportunity. The other area that, that uh, I know less about, but I think it's interesting is this notion of a blockchain and basically sharing information in a decentralized manner, locking into patterns that a group of folks who don't necessarily know each other, but still have the ability to trust each other as a result of data being in encoded in this particular format. The one story I do want to bring up about Zynga, because this is somewhat Zynga lore, <laughs> some of these podcasts, and Justin is going to have good stories about this too, is so Katie, not only did we have quarterly level ups, but we had these quarterly all hands meetings. And during them, they would call out who leveled up and it would be like a movie reel where your name would just fly through this movie reel in front of everyone. And we would go, we'd have obviously like big parties, like rent out venues in San Francisco. We'd all go there and, and they would have presentation on what was coming up and what our goals were and some of our wins and stuff. But the big part of the presentation was the end where people found out what prizes they got. And if you leveled up, your name would be on this roll. Now they do that, right? So you would be looking for your name like, oh, sweet, you know, I leveled up. But then they'd have the Rockstar Awards. 
And the Rockstar Awards were they'd call out your name and you would win something. Yeah. So you would get a $5,000 credit or whatever you wanted. Basically, you could just go do something for $5,000. And uh, Justin is the filter predictive model feature I released, which basically would change the marketing based on your likelihood to act. I won a Rockstar Award because of that feature. So that was pretty sweet. And there was also... (laughs) <laughs> just how many you must have won some of these wars i gotta imagine <laughs> i think they gave me a second place prize brad i think you got <laughs> you got the rockstar award because that honestly that was impactful that was really for the players it enabled for a much better experience what was the award where you got a hundred thousand dollars worth of best stock what was that called oh man i should know that i, I want to say maybe it was the green beret award i just remember no. green beret awards being some incredible trip there was so there was a ten thousand dollar award, but then Katie, there was one one hundred thousand dollars invested stock award each quarter. Kind of, if you it was a little bit of a tenure award, like if you had been around and you had done a bunch of stuff for a long time, you got this reward. But that was like the grand finale. It was just basically like someone get walking up on stage and getting basically a hundred thousand dollars invested stock. Like that. Yeah, was that your, was incredible. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Every quarter, every quarter. And you, everyone would be there. And then and then that day we'd have like a party afterwards or whatever. Just some of the stuff that went on there was incredible. I mean, and Justin took full advantage. Like I said, I mean, he joined right after college and went from a product manager, to director of product within less than three years. The bonuses that Justin got, I'm sure were amazing. They were so good that when I became a manager, I would give mediocre bonuses to people who thought that they were the best in the group because they were so good, right? Like that's how good these bonuses were. So it was pretty incredible. If anyone's out there who wants a mentor, if you're open to mentorship, man, in terms of product manager, Justin, you're the best of the best. And I'm not just saying that. Thank you again for, for uh, all that you've taught me uh, and all the fun that we had serving so many millions of, of players all across the country. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks again to our guest, Justin, for coming on to the show. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we can't wait to make more just like this one for you. So here's Justin to close us out. I had dedicated drawers just to Zenga t-shirts. And in fact, I still have them. I I love them. That's great because I sold mine or gave mine away or something. And I was legit on eBay looking for them back. Like I wanted to get those back because they're awesome t-shirts. So they had like Mm -hmm. super talented designers making them. I mean, they weren't just random t-shirts and they were gaming t-shirts too. So they'd be red, green, orange, pink. Pride ones were awesome. Mm -hmm. And they just had, I mean. Zenga never did did colored shirts, but um, yeah, their t-shirts were incredible because literally Zenga had so many talented artists that just would go to town. And I remember walking by whiteboards and just seeing the most incredible artwork just drawn in expo markers. And that was part of the culture there, which was super cool. No other company I've worked in.